Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Other People Podcast. Happy Sunday. I am Brad Listy. I'm here in Los Angeles. It is good to be with you. I appreciate you tuning in, and I hope you're doing all right wherever you are. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. So my guest today is Athena Dixon, author of a memoir in essays called the loneliness files. And I, I think that I've slipped far down the mountain of loneliness a couple of times where I theoretically know that I've been alone too long and that sometimes I can get so oppressive that you don't know how to get out of it. And probably one of the best things that's happened through writing this book and having some of my family and friends read it so far has been they're like, we know now to ask you. We know now to check in a lot more with you because we just assume that you're always okay with being by yourself. We always assume that you're fine because you don't say that you're not fine. So that's been like the, the blessing of being able to finally talk about the, some of this stuff is that people really are like, we assume outwardly that you're okay, but we know that you're not now. All right. That was Athena Dixon. Her new memoir in essays is called The Loneliness Files. It is available from Tin House. The Loneliness Files is a very candid collection of autobiographical essays about alienation, fear, depression, death, community, and family, and of course about being alone. Athena Dixon writes with bracing honesty 
about living alone as a middle-aged woman without children or pets, working a full-time job from home, living more than 350 miles from her family and the friends she grew up with. This book explores Athena's search for connection, her examinations of the depths of communal loneliness, and it also confronts a range of difficult questions, including personal ones like, how have her past decisions left her so alone? And are we as human beings linked by a shared loneliness? And if so, how do we find our way back to one another? I had a very interesting conversation with Athena Dixon. That is coming up in just a couple of minutes. A quick reminder to please subscribe to my weekly email newsletter. You can do that over at Substack. The newsletter is pretty simple. I let you know about the latest episodes of the show. I also share a list of links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if you would like to hear from me in your inbox once a week, head on over to Substack and subscribe. Likewise, if you love this show, if you want to help it continue into the future, you can join the Patreon community for the Other People podcast over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Okay, so my guest once again is Athena Dixon. Her new book is called The Loneliness Files. It is available from Tin House. Athena Dixon is a poet, an essayist, and an editor. Her debut essay collection, The Incredible Shrinking Woman, was published back in 2020 by Split Lip Press. She is an alumna of Vona, Callaloo, and Tin House, and has received a prose fellowship from the Martha's Vineyard Institute of Creative Writing. She is a native of Northeast Ohio and now resides in Philadelphia. I had a great time meeting Athena Dixon and talking with her about this new book of hers, a memoir in essays called The Loneliness Files. So let's get to the conversation. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Athena Dixon. So my original intent going into what turned out to be this book wasn't necessarily to write a book. I was living by myself in this apartment, roughly almost 400 miles from my family. And I got really, really interested in these lonely corpses. And so the algorithm does what the algorithm does. And I started coming across more and more of these stories. And there was this kernel of curiosity that made me want to chase these stories down because I recognized myself so much in these stories. And so about maybe seven or eight essays in as I was exploring my own loneliness and my feelings of it and how it manifested, I decided that it was probably going to be a book. But the original idea was just for me to figure out why I was feeling the way that I was feeling, why I was making these decisions that led me to being by myself during, at the time, a global pandemic, and kind of where I was going to go after I realized how lonely I was. And so that's what it was originally. It was a curiosity. It was a, a fear that led me to writing the book. Okay. You said you saw yourself mm-hmm. in stories of lonely corpses. <laughs> I did. So what is it? What does that mean? So the the main story that I came across first was a story of Joyce Carol Vincent, which was the English woman who passed away in 2003. And she sat in front of her television with Christmas gifts beside her until 2006 when they found her body. 
and I and, came and across I, I should interrupt. This is a young woman. This is not an old woman. Yeah. She was 38. And she was like, well, educated. She had four sisters. She was engaged at some point. She had a, a living father. She had friends. She had a very professional life. And at some point, she just quit her job and became a recluse. And so when I came across her story, I was looking at myself and I'm sitting in this apartment in Philadelphia behind a triple locked door. And I'm like, I'm only 13 years younger than her when she passed. And this is very much my life. If I was to die, it may not take three years for somebody to find my body, but it may take a couple of days, a couple of weeks before my sister or my parents are like, hey, she's not responding to text messages. And so when I came across her, I was very, very fearful because we had such a similar background. We were of the same generation. We had the same educational background. We were both black women. And I, for the first time, realized how easy it would be for me to slip away from the world and die and no one would know. Yeah, it's kind of, I think this is something on one level or another that all of us ponder at, at certain turns in our life, like, uh, or at certain turns in our lives, like, what's going to happen when I die? What will, will anyone show up for my funeral? <laughs> I hope <laughs> you know? so. Yeah. Like, or will anyone show up to find me if I die alone, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just so heartbreaking to think of this body sitting there for years mm-hmm. surrounded by of all things christmas presents there's exactly. a deep sad there's a deep sadness in that and i think what what it points to and what i think this collection points to is a, a deeper trend that has been escalating i think for quite a long time in our contemporary world with respect to loneliness and the feelings that so many of us have when it comes to this issue, feelings of isolation, feelings of disconnect, a feeling of loss of community. Mm-hmm. And it just, I think, gets brought into really sharp focus when you engage with a narrative like the one of Joyce Carol Dixon or Elisa Lamb. You read about mm-hmm. Elisa Lamb at the Cecil Hotel, which we're going to talk about. But, you know, you read stories like this, and these are extreme cases of isolation and disconnect. Mm-hmm. And it also makes you think, like, how could this possibly happen? How could a, exactly. how could a, how could a corpse sit in an apartment for three years? Everything was on auto pay, right? I mean, yeah. like... Everything. And it wasn't until she got to a, a point where her bills were no longer being paid by these programs that they kind of burst into the apartment and that's how they found her. And even like the decomposition of her body was explained away by the dumpsters in the alley downstairs. And I think they said one neighbor not because of her television was loud. But outside of that, like she disappeared and nobody realized that she was dead. And that's just a, a terrifying to thing to think about is you could just as long as the business of the world can move around you you're kind of just like another number until the world has to stop because of your absence right until your bill stop it's until money becomes an issue exactly and when i want to say when they found her it was basically just like a skeleton sitting there Mm -hmm. yeah i read one of the um, articles about her and they said that essentially her body had like melted into the carpet that they had to use dental records to identify her because it had been so long since she she laid there. Do we know cause of death? Did you write about cause of death? Um, I didn't, but 
mostly what they think is that at some point leading up to her death, they believe she had an ulcer that she was taking medication for. And they think that it was something to do with that that possibly was her demise. She did like an ulcer? I didn't know ulcers could kill you. Yeah, depending if you were, depending where they are, maybe you're not being treated for them. But yeah, it was kind of difficult to tell. Wasn't it asthma too or no? I think possibly it could have been too. But I know she had treatments for ulcers for sure. But sadly, had somebody checked on her a little sooner, they may have been able to find out for sure. Yeah. So the other uh, story or another story of a somewhat similar elk that you write about in this collection is the aforementioned Elisa Lamb, which mm-hmm. some of our listeners may be familiar with her from the Netflix documentary about the Cecil Hotel, which mm-hmm. I have seen the trailer for and have like studiously avoided ever since because that is <laughs> some creepy shit. <laughs> it is. You know, but can you give people who are not familiar an overview of both the Cecil Hotel and the case of Elisa Lamb? So most people kind of came into knowledge of the Cecil Hotel from American Horror Story. So it's Elisa Lamb's video in the elevator of that hotel and the lobby of that hotel and its Art Deco stature kind of informed the hotel season of American Horror Story. So the Cecil Hotel was this hotel that opened in the 1920s. It was, I think their slogan was like, a bed at an affordable rate. But this hotel has such tragedy attached to it. So the Night Stalker lived at that hotel for a while. There's lots of deaths and lots of suicide and lots of paranormal activity that people associate with the hotel. And so Elisa Lamb was a Canadian student who decided to go on a solo trip to Los Angeles. And she stayed at that hotel. Her Tumblr blog, which is still up to this day, kind of documents her first getting to the city. And she, a few days into her trip, disappears. Nobody knows where she went. And eventually other patrons at the hotel started to complain about their water tasting funny and looking funny and come to find out that her body was in the water tank on top of the hotel's roof. And it was part of her decomposition coming through the water lines at the hotel. And so eventually this elevator tape of her comes out where she is wearing this red sweatshirt and she's looking very confused and she's pushing all the buttons and she's kind of peering around the elevator. And so people started to think that she was being chased or there was something paranormal happening. And they became like this linchpin for true crime people to kind of figure out what happened to her. And eventually they decided that it was partially tied to her bipolar diagnosis that she was not taking her medication in a way that kind of made her have an episode. And that's how she got into the water tank, which people still don't fully believe, but that's what happened to Elisa. Yeah. That's horrible. It is. I mean, how, so like, let's just say that she was having some sort of episode. Mm -hmm. She decides to go for a swim in the water tank and just can't get out. Exactly. Like, right. Uh, like, how did you get up there? And there's like some of the things that they talk about in the documentaries, like there are like alarms on those doors. Like you can just go to the rooftop without somebody knowing. How does she get the the water tank open? How did she get in there? So people, some people believe that that's true. That's how she passed. Other people are still holding on to the idea that there's something more nefarious about it. But the official story is it's a an accidental drowning associated with her bipolar di- diagnosis. Where do you land? I think that is a little bit between the two. Like, I still haven't resolved in my own head. Like, I just don't understand how it's possible to get into that water tank without some kind of aid or some kind of help, without anybody knowing. Um, but I think that 
partially why it maybe have been easier to get her there is because she wasn't fully in her quote unquote right mind. Right. Right. You guess, yeah, it's just a mystery. You can't really know. I don't think we'll ever know. So, you know, you see yourself though in that story Mm -hmm. somehow. I do. What is it about that particular story that resonated with you? I think part of it is I'm a, a person who doesn't mind traveling by myself and in my younger days, not traveling safely, just going out into the world and just assuming that all people are good and that people are going to help you if you're lost or people are going to accommodate you. Like I would just go and I would get lost in cities and ask people for directions, never thinking like these people might do me harm if they see an out of town person and who has money enough to travel. I would just assume the goodness in people. And so for Elisa, I, I recognized her wanderlust and her, her desire to go out into the world and find pieces of herself and to do that by herself without the influence of other people kind of swaying what she was trying to discover. And so when I came across her story, it was very much similar to Joyce. Like I have several Tumblr blogs, I still do. Um, and, and a lot of them were places where I would kind of puzzle out the world. And looking at her her blog made me realize we had very similar ideas and similar ways that we looked at the world. And also dealing with like mental health, like I don't have a bipolar diagnosis, but I have been diagnosed with depression and anxiety and ADHD. And so that alters sometimes how I interact with the world. So I found like a kindred spirit with her as well there. And fortunately, my path diverged from hers and I didn't kind of end up in the same way, but I saw so much of a similar path with her that I was intrigued by finding out more about her and also trying to find some humanity to give back to her. So she wasn't just like this true crime story that she was still a person who had these hopes and these dreams and these plans and they just kind of ended it tragically. It's funny how often true crime has come up on this show and in the books that I've been reading this year. It's happened multiple Mm -hmm. times uh, I guess because it is so pervasive and yes. it often involves women, right? As mm-hmm. the as the victims and as the sort of centerpiece of these mysteries. And mm-hmm. something that you write about, which you've been alluding to, is the ways in which people leave in the modern era behind after they pass away a kind of digital legacy. So there's something sad and haunting and fascinating about, for example, reading through Elisa Lamb's Tumblr, mm-hmm. especially in those days just prior to her disappearance. Right. Like, what was and going on? And the fact that on? it continued on after she passed. What do you mean? Um, her Tumblr blog had a queue for posts that were already scheduled to go up. So even after she was dead, her blog kept updating oh until God. the post ran out. Yeah. How, for how long? Um, I think it was at least several months, like, and there's, there has been no posts for a while. So like Tumblr has this feature where you can queue posts a year plus in advance. You can just set the date and the time that they post. And her blog had something like that. So even after she was like already in this water tank, her blog was still posting actively. Oh, wow. So it's like this kind of like ghostly posting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that'll add some intrigue. And you write in the book as you ponder all of this stuff, quote, if there were to be an article about the discovery of my body, I think its writer would say I was aloof, but a good person, nice, but not friendly, that maybe I spent a little too much time alone. I think its writer would say this was by choice. Mm-hmm. Aloof. Yes. I find, but aloof is like when somebody's sort of like 
I guess maybe I'm misunderstanding the word. It's like somebody sort of holds themselves above everybody else because they sense that they are superior or they put on that kind of air. Or is it just wanting to be sort of at a remove? That strikes me as yeah. more accurate for you. Yeah, for me, it's like me being a little bit of arm's length from everybody. Sometimes, I will be honest, I'm, I'm a writer, so I have to be true with my words. Sometimes it may be that in a certain situations, I'm like, I'm a little too, I don't want to say good, because that's sounds really bad. But I'm a little bit too different to be in the situation. So I might want to be a little distant. But the vast majority of the times, it's me just kind of creating a bubble around myself. And not necessarily for bad reasons. So I say I'm, I'm nice, but not friendly. I, I say that to people all the time. I am the nicest person. I will be nice to you. I will be mean. I won't be mean. I'll be accommodating to you. But talking to you first, approaching you first, engaging with you first will almost 100% never happen. You have to approach me and then I'm super nice. So it's always like this little bit of a buffer that I create around myself. And so I think that's how people who don't know me intimately would view me. That, oh, Athena was nice. She wasn't mean, but she didn't really engage very often. And and part of that really is protection. What, what do you mean? Protection from what? Um, I think from, being, from rejection, from being hurt, for being too trusting. Like I mentioned a little while ago about when I was younger and traveling by myself, I was very apt to just assume the goodness in everybody. And I've had some very hard lessons to learn, which everybody doesn't have your best intentions at heart. And so part of that is just a defense mechanism, right? Trying to figure out the person's intentions in advance, even without engaging with them. And so it's always a little bit of a chore for me to step outside of that. Where, where were you traveling? Just that, I mean, it sounds like were you... Um, some... I sp- I spent some time in London by myself, in Oxford by myself, pretty much everywhere in this country, Canada a couple of times. Nowhere super, quote unquote, dangerous, depending on where you are, but just by myself with just this, this idealism that everything is going to be great and just hopping on trains and buses and in cabs and not thinking anything about where I was going, just just free in the world without you a get, care. You said some bad things happened. Did you get mugged or something? Um, I've not been mugged. I've had a couple guns in my face before. Just, again, being in situations where you assume the goodness of people. And thankfully, nothing really, really tragic happened. I didn't get up and end up injured. But there's been some very hairy situations. First time I ever saw this gun was because somebody was pointing one in my face in a not nice way. But when, again, when is there ever a nice way to point a gun in somebody's face? There's not. I was trying to be nice, but no, it, it was really a situation where I, like I was somewhere that I probably should have been a little bit wary of being um, with people I really didn't know. But again, thinking that everybody has good intentions, and I was I was markedly younger. But yeah, part of that is just like trying to suss out the situation before I get myself into trouble. It's a it's a genuine conundrum, I think especially as you get older and you sort of experience life, unless, unless I suppose you're very lucky or live some sort of very sunny existence. But mm-hmm. you live long enough and you do experience disappointment at the hands of other human beings. Yeah. And maybe disappointment is even on the lighter side of what you can experience. Human beings are capable of some truly awful things, as they are. You know, I think most of us have seen, especially recently in the news. And so... The conundrum is how to behave, because I think on the one hand, most decent people hold up as ideals things like compassion, sensitivity, open-heartedness, wanting to be there 
for people. And yet, there are these disappointments. There are bad behaviors. There are the ways in which human beings fail one another so often and, and often so egregiously. And once you've experienced that, it's like, how do you recover? And how do you continue to be an open, kind, compassionate person who is receptive to friendship and good at cultivating friendship once you've been disappointed? It's hard to rebound, right? It can be, for sure. I think for me, and I always, everything that I write and kind of everything that I kind of puzzle through creatively usually doesn't have a resolution. But for me, part of it is at a base level, trying to give the people that I come in contact with some kind of grace. And that's easier said than done some days. Some days it may be my gut tells me that you're not good for me. It sounds kind of new agey, but like I, your energy just seems like a little bit off. And what I've had to do in the last couple of years is hone my gut instincts. Um, I'm a, a recovering people pleaser. I'm a, a person who wasn't used to putting up boundaries. And so even if I felt like something wasn't right, I was more apt to give that person the benefit of the doubt. So I've learned to keep that level of grace by like not assuming that people are bad, but also paying attention to my own instincts. Like what's like, what's the reason that this person is engaging with me and how are they engaging me paying attention to their body cues paying attention to their tone of voice paying attention to how they treat other people um especially now like in some situations like how do they treat people that they can't get things from so are we at a restaurant and you're being rude to the server like that's something i would think about in the past i wouldn't really think about it so how are you engaging with the world outside of the interaction that we're having and paying attention to those kind of cues allows me to determine whether or not I want to be involved with that person, whether or not that's something that I want to actively build a a thread or a connection to. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, there is a lot of mention in this book about the pandemic, which enforced a kind of isolation on all of us, at least for a time, or most of us. Yeah, so some of us. Yeah, some of us had to be out in the world and working and mm-hmm. kind of interacting to a more or less normal degree, but many people were in isolation. And I think in particular, people who live alone, older people or single people or Mm -hmm. people living in a one-bedroom apartment suddenly confined to that apartment and trying to avoid the virus and spending unusual amounts of time alone. Uh, You write 
in your book, quote, I am overwhelmingly lonely and I cannot believe that doesn't matter and I will not believe there are not scores of others like me. I know there are those who feel the world is always just a little too far away or a little too close, never comfortable in either situation. My question for you has to do with the pandemic versus Mm -hmm. quote unquote normal existence, which we are now back in, in some capacity. Yeah. Like the feeling of loneliness was heightened during the pandemic, or is this just your default mode, this feeling of loneliness? Um, I think it was the default mode that I wasn't recognizing. I think that the pandemic for me, I went from working in an office five days a week with people that I considered to be my friends and having an active life in the city to being in a two bedroom apartment by myself with no pet, no partner, just nobody. I think that because I had all those distractions and those outlets before the pandemic, I didn't have to pay attention to what I was really feeling very deeply. But once all the the options were stripped away, then I had to really sit with what I, what I was feeling and the decisions that I made to get there. So for the first time from like 2020 to roughly 2022, it was the first time in the nine years that I had lived in the city of Philadelphia where I had to sit with my decisions and really think about why did I make the decision to pack up my life and move 400 miles away by myself? Why was I only going home once a year to see my family? And so the loneliness just had a brighter spotlight once the pandemic happened for me because I had no distractions. I had no outlet. I had no way to kind of push it aside because I was busy. I had to like sit with it and really think about it. So why did you move 400 miles away from home? And why do you only go back home once a year? Did you come to conclusions? Um, The once a year thing was really just me being so immersed in the life that I was creating in the city that I wasn't making it a priority to go home as often as I should. Even the drive is like six and a half, seven hours. Like that's not a super big deal for a Midwesterner. Like it's a one-stop trip. So that was a very conscious thing that I was doing where I was like, oh, I have to do all these other things. I don't have to go home. But the decision to move so far away was kind of a knee-jerk reaction. So I moved to Philadelphia in 2015 and I was a couple of years off of a really bad breakup, a really bad divorce, a couple of suicide attempts where I just didn't want to be a living anymore. And so I got the idea in my head that I needed to prove that I was strong. I needed to prove that I could survive with no one besides myself. And so I got a job, transferred jobs and moved to Philadelphia, no apartment, no plan. I just went, I put everything in storage and figured it out once I got there. And that was completely a decision based on me at that time thinking I needed nobody else that I didn't need my family, I didn't need my friends, I didn't need my community, I needed to prove that I could survive alone in the world. And it wasn't until 2020 that I realized the consequences of that. You you can't just get yourself out of that kind of life. You've, You've built a life for almost a decade now, and now you have to reverse course. And so that decision was not very thought out. It was necessary, but it wasn't really thought out until it was too late to reverse course. Why was it was emotionally necessary in the wake of this breakup and this difficult mm-hmm. emotion? You know, you needed to prove that to yourself. I did. I needed to. Like, I, a part of it was like I needed to prove that I needed to be alive because 
one of the things that I wrote about in my um, first collection was this idea that outside of me being like a daughter, a sister, a wife, a friend, I had real no, no real idea who I was as a person. And so once all those things were kind of stripped away and I didn't want to live, I had to figure out like, what what do I need to survive? What do I need to live? What do I need to keep me on this planet? And part of that was me moving away to figure out if I could build a life outside of the confines of my roles that I had lived in my life, in my entire life. And it seems like you figured out that you're a writer. I think so. Is there anything else yeah. you figured out in terms of your identity? Um, I think I figured out that the identities that I was the identities that I had, like being an older sister, being a daughter, are things that I really, really cherish and that I really am proud of. But I was treating them as almost like burdens. I felt like everything had to be an output, that I had to be like a perfect older daughter. I had to be the big, the good big sister. I had to extend myself and I had cut off the ability for people to care for me. And so once I got far enough away, I learned that it was okay for me to lean on my family. It's okay for me to lean on my sister and my friends and my community because they were offering these things to me. I was just so willfully blind to it that it took me not having them physically there to recognize that it was okay to accept it. And I think I realized that I'm like, I think I'm still growing into a more confident person, the version of myself that exists in my head that I never really let myself move towards because I thought that I had to follow this particular path. And so I'm still kind of learning who that Athena is, but she's much more fully fleshed than she was before I made the move. You, you Have you been through therapy? Has that helped you through the process? Yeah, I'm actively in therapy every Saturday morning. Uh, I think you write about this, right? On Zoom or uh-huh. whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love my therapist. She's, she's like, I mentioned a little while ago that this is the first time in my life, I'm in my mid-40s, and I got diagnosed with ADHD in my mid-40s. So I spent my entire life feeling like my thought process and my brain and the way I navigated the world, there was something not kind of quite right. And now that I know that this is why, it's allowing me to open up new avenues on how to like exist in the world. But therapy is like one of the best decisions that I made to get back into because I was in therapy for a while and then didn't go for several years and then finally found a therapist that I really clicked with. And it's been probably one of the best decisions I've made over the last couple of years. Well, that's great. It's hard to find somebody that, that you really click with. That's the key. Yeah. I've had my first therapist retired. I was her last patient ever. And then the two between her and my current therapist, Sierra, weren't the best fits. And I think sometimes I can do more damage if you have someone you don't really feel like you can confide in. So I'm glad that I finally found a person who really like works. So on a broader like cultural and societal level, loneliness, I think, is a problem, not just in the United States, but around the world. I think there are lots of countries and cultures that are grappling with this and the citizens of which are experiencing in a really acute and really ultimately toxic way because Biologically, human beings are social creatures and we need one another and we thrive best in some kind of community. It doesn't necessarily have to be a huge community, but having strong family ties, I mean, this has been proven to be great for your health, right? To have Mm -hmm. solid friendships, people who are good at cultivating and nurturing friendships live longer, people who have happy family lives live longer, all that kind of stuff. 
And yet, I think there are people who are temperamentally suited to spending more time alone than most people. I'm one of them. I think most writers fall into this camp. And it can slide into dysfunction. It's not... Mm -hmm. There's kind of a fine line, right? I sometimes wonder where I am on the side of it. So this book spoke to me. And you write about Japan as an example of a country that is maybe dealing with this issue more explicitly than most countries. They have a minister of loneliness yes, they <laughs> in do. Japan. And then they also have a word. What is it? Hikikomore? Yes. Which, which means what? It's um, a segment of people, about a million people in Japan, who purposely isolate. They usually they're men for the most part, but they stay completely separated from society. They are usually in one room. They don't come out. They don't have social interactions. A lot of them don't have friends. There's a rising term called sotokomori, which are people who exist mainly online, even though they're very isolated. They they at least have some outlet. But it's just a group of people who purposely isolate themselves from the world, that they have like real no interaction whatsoever, like physical interaction, social interaction, nothing. They're completely alone. See, I have a family, so I, f- I don't feel lonely. Like I have mm-hmm. chaos on the other side of this door. You know what I'm saying? So, but I'm kind of hikikomori. <laughs> like, I can spend all day in my office working alone or reading, doing whatever, you know, whatever I have to do, perfectly content. Yeah. I don't I'm do, I don't, I don't do a lot socially. I'm not like out at parties events. I mean, occasionally I went to a concert this weekend. I mean, I'm not like a total shut in, but I don't need a ton of social activity. Yeah. I don't, and I don't feel like super unhappy. I mean, it's not like, I don't feel like it's a problem, but Mm -hmm. maybe I'm fooling myself and I'm actually Hikikomori. I don't know. I I I tend to find that like I'm very similar. I like I like my solitude, but I for some reason people who are much more extroverted and much more social tend to adopt me. So the friends that I do have are people who want to like invite me out places and have me go places, which works for me because I can get my fill of being in public, but then they know when to like leave me alone. I don't know. I think that there's a slippery slope there, and I I think that I've slipped far down the mountain of loneliness a couple of times where I theoretically know that I've been alone too long and that sometimes I can get so oppressive that you don't know how to get out of it. And probably one of the best things that's happened through writing this book and having some of my family and friends read it so far has been they're like, we know now to ask you. We know now to check in a lot more with you because we just assume that you're always okay with being by yourself. We always assume that you're fine because you don't say that you're not fine. Um, one of my friends who's much more social than me, um, she read the book a couple of weeks ago and she told me that she was highlighting certain parts in the book. And she's she's like, the biggest takeaway was I didn't realize during COVID how lonely you were. She's like, I thought that you were just okay being at home by yourself. And I feel bad that I didn't ask you if you were okay. So that's been like the, the blessing of being able to finally talk about the, some of this stuff is that people really are like, we assume outwardly that you're okay but we know that you're not now. And so I guess I guess in some ways it's them recognizing the the cliff that I'm on at times. 
Yeah, I think this is the case for lots of people, family members, friends, where there is a communication divide and not one that is created with any kind of malicious intent. Yeah. We just don't necessarily share some of our more difficult feelings with one another because we don't want to burden somebody else mm-hmm. or it's just hard, right? It's hard to talk about feeling bad with people. And then there's also there's also the fear that if you do, they might not even care enough to respond or they might respond right. in a really insufficient way. And so it gets complicated, right? And then you write a book about it and suddenly you're hearing from yeah. people. So I guess that's what it takes. <laughs> it does. I think too, sometimes I think I've been in situations where I've been afraid to tell somebody how I'm feeling because I don't want a solution. I just need, I need you to listen to what I'm feeling and then let me get it out and then let me go about my way. But sometimes people assume you telling them what you're feeling is you asking them to solve the issue for you. And that's not necessarily what I want. I just wanted to be able to get it out and then... I'll work on it on my own, but I just need to be able to like hear these things out loud in some kind of way. Yeah. You need a sounding board. Exactly. But I do. Yeah. I, there is that experience and I've, I'm, this is the way I am. Somebody confides in me like that and I'm immediately like in solution mode mm-hmm. and I've learned the hard way. That's not in many cases what someone wants. And if you mm-hmm. start jabbering at somebody like brainstorming solutions after they've just revealed themselves to you, they just shut down. It exhausts yeah. them. They they can even come to resent, resent you. You know, maybe not forever, but for a moment where it's like, dude, just shut up. I'm trying to trying to share here. Right. <laughs> and you're giving me like a, you know, a PowerPoint about my life. It's not it's not the it's not the way. <laughs> yes. Uh, so this brings up questions around intimacy mm-hmm. and uh, the prospects of uh, family and all that kind of stuff. You know, like Factoring those things into an examination of loneliness seems like a natural course. You know, if a person is lonely, they likely don't have an intimate partner, though maybe they do. There is such a thing as loneliness in a relationship. You know, yeah. that, that is that is a uh, particular kind of loneliness. But I've been there too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you sort of, but you, you write about this, you know, pondering the prospect of motherhood. You write about having a friend who offers to be a sperm donor and to like give you the gift of of motherhood and you also write about crybaby bridge over the mahoning mm-hmm. river in ohio which is like yes i guess i'll let you describe it it's pretty haunting yeah so in my hometown um there is a bridge that's like this intersection of three roads and growing up the story always was that if you got to this bridge around midnight or really late at night and you stopped your car you could hear babies crying because that was the bridge where either the Ku Klux Klan or mothers who didn't want to keep their children threw their babies off the bridge to drown them. And so you're supposed to go to this bridge. It doesn't even have to be Halloween. Just go to the bridge and you can hear the babies crying. Sometimes your car won't start. It was like an urban legend that I grew up with. And But no supernatural or paranormal experiences for you there? Not for me because I avoided it. When I was home last week for the book tour, we were driving to my sister's house, and she lives on the outskirts of our hometown now. What, and what's we drove the town? over the bridge, Alliance, Ohio. Okay, it's about an hour and fifteen minutes outside of Cleveland, and we were driving to her house. Her house, and we drove over the bridge, and we, I didn't even realize it until after we were over the bridge that it was the bridges I wrote about. But I was too chicken to ever try it. I, I refused. Yeah, that's that's dark. 
No, like, thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. No, thank you. But you mentioned earlier you've been through difficult times with relationships. You went through a very mm-hmm. difficult divorce, which precipitated probably like the low point of your life mm-hmm. where you're not wanting to be alive uh, yeah. for a spell, you know. And divorce is really, really tough. Uh, you know, I've been witness to it at a, you know, we all know people who go through divorce. You live long enough, mm-hmm. it's going to happen. And I think sometimes, like that is a particular kind of trauma that maybe doesn't get enough credit. <laughs> uh, that's a kind of a strange way to put it. But I'm just saying that it's it's a lot more painful and disruptive and traumatic yeah. than it is often attributed with. And I think it can cause in people who are experiencing it a very acute feeling of loneliness because mm-hmm. you go from being coupled to being uncoupled. Oftentimes you will lose friends. Like, you know, there's always this talk of who gets which friends in the divorce, you yeah. know? So you lose people who were formerly close to you. And sometimes you can feel alienated from your family because they can take sides in the thing or they can have their, mm-hmm. you know, thoughts and opinions on it. And so it can cause isolation, correct? Yeah, for sure. I think in my situation, I was already living in New Jersey when I was married and my family was in Ohio. So when we broke up, I was like a ghost. I was by myself. And so it took a little while for me to move back to Ohio. My job allowed me to move back because I had nobody else to be with. But the isolation for me was is that I kind of lived in two worlds. So I had my life in New Jersey where I was married and I had a friend group and a family there. And then I had my family and friends back in Ohio And a lot of them had never met my spouse at the time. We had a a wedding in Philadelphia. Um, So by the time the divorce started, we were married a very short time in comparison to how long we knew each other. But by the time I moved home, I wasn't prepared to tell these people that my marriage had failed. I was still wearing my ring. I still had out-of-state license plates. I was like under this illusion that I was still married because I didn't know how to explain to them that this thing was over. So it was very isolating to in that situation where I no longer had my spouse, I no longer had that life that I had built, but then to go back to my hometown and to have to isolate in a way because I was trying to hide what was really going on. So I rented this apartment and I write about it a little bit about my dad coming to get me from that apartment where I was hiding because I didn't want to have to explain to people that I was a failure, that I wasn't able to keep this like American dream relationship and life that I had together. And so I had literally no place to be for a very long time. And um, it's like the loneliest of my life. It was it was the darkest point in my life. The silver lining, though, is I didn't write a personal essay until I was going through that divorce. Um, that was the very first time I wrote a personal essay. So out of all that isolation and all that loneliness and all that depression and suicidal ideation was I found a new creative form. But it was like just being like in a, a black hole. Like there was no talking to me. There was no getting me out of that until I was ready to come out of it. So for those of you listening who are writers, this is your advice. Just uh, <laughs> venture into a black hole and- just, Yes, go through a divorce. <laughs> just, just, yeah, just find yourself in the very darkest night of your soul and you will find your yeah. preferred writing form. But, yes. you know, it is the old, the old uh, saying, crisis equals danger plus opportunity, right? These low mm-hmm. moments often have embedded within them the silver lining, if you, can, if you can find it, if you can see it. 
Yeah. It takes some years to get to that. Like, it was a minute before I was like, and even now people have asked me like that kind of like stark isolation, like, would you change how you approached it? Would you, do you regret anything? Like, I don't like, was it painful? Absolutely. Was it the worst time of my life? Absolutely. But I'm a firm believer of the idea that all these things are like dominoes and like had I not gone through that to some degree, I would have never written an essay and that would have never led to me writing books. So And talking to me right now. Exactly. <laughs> so it is kind of bringing us uh, around in a circle now to what I mentioned earlier about issues of other people and trust and mm-hmm. kind of navigating the complexities of human relationships and dealing with the disappointments that often accompany those relationships and the betrayals and the, mm-hmm. the, the, the hurt, you know, they can go along with knowing other human beings. And I have to believe that with a divorce, it's maybe more so. It's, it's like, a, like the most intense expression of that almost, or one of, the, one of the, you know, the more intense expressions of that. And so a question is like bouncing back from it, keeping your heart open after a marriage falls apart, keeping yourself optimistic to the possibility of love and connection and you know, not that you have to be married again. I don't think marriage yeah. is a necessity for a happy life. And I think mm-hmm. we, we sort of get sold that, right, in our culture. For sure. And it can be. I mean, like marriage is wonderful in so many respects. It's not easy. I mean, it's not like, it, it, it's, not like it's like a totally uh, false proposition or something. Right. It's just not the only option. I think we get told that that's like the end goal for everything, any relationship. And I think now going through a divorce, I don't know if I'll ever get married again. It doesn't mean I don't want like a long-term partner at some point, but I don't think that marriage would be the end goal for me ever again. But in terms of, okay, so let's just say that's mm-hmm. the, let's just say that's the the path, right? You have a partner, mm-hmm. but you're just sort of like Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn. You never actually write it on paper, but you're committed to each other. Yeah. Right? Uh, still, I can imagine, maybe in particular in the more immediate aftermath of the separation and the divorce, it could be hard to feel like open to that or to be in an emotional state where you would be attracting a worthy partner anyway. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You sort of have to be in a good place, I think, to find the yeah, right person. for sure. <laughs> so it's just like navigating that part of it kind of working through all of those feelings of darkness and intense isolation and getting back to a place where you're receptive and you're feeling good about yourself. That's, mm-hmm. that's part of it, right? Yeah, I think so. I, I will be honest and say it took me a long time to be able to like trust anybody to like to give them a phone number to, to email, to have any kind of like non-friendship interaction with. It took me a very long time. And there were a lot of false starts in there. And what I found that works for me, and there's still no resolution because I've still been officially single since the divorce, has been, and it's been some some years and I've still been single. But what's worked for me is as I've been learning myself and being kinder to myself and kind of like leaning into things about myself that I tamped down because I didn't think that they fit this good girl life that I was supposed to have is finding people to interact with that speak to those parts of myself 
And so the people that I have kind of had dates with or had interest in are people that spark some kind of passion or curiosity in me. And before it just seemed more like it was, this is a good fit based on what I think my life should end up being. And now I find myself being more intellectually curious about people and creatively curious about people and finding people that seem to fit the parts of me that I deem the most important now, the parts of me that I tamped down for a very long time. It's not fail safe. I was like, had a photographer who thought looked good on paper, but was not. Looks good but on that's paper. Like the, the, <laughs> a, a perfect, perfect on paper. Real life, not so much. So that's what it's been. It's been like the same kind of curiosity that I take into my writing and that makes me want to chase something down a rabbit hole for several years to write about it is the same way I approach trying to get involved in a relationship, trying to bring somebody into my life as a partner. And so far, it hasn't stuck, but it's gotten a lot better. It sounds healthier. Yeah, it is. Dating, like dating apps. Don't you write about your therapist telling you, like you guys yes. talk about the, the apps. <laughs> I got to say, I have, I have some real sympathy for people who are dating in mm-hmm. modern times. I met my wife just before dating apps happened. Mm-hmm. So I have no experience of them. But um, I, I imagine it would be kind of a nightmare. Yeah, it's not for me. I joke with my friends all the time that if and when I end up in some kind of partnership with somebody, it's going to end up being like somebody's friend or brother or whoever that they think I would be a good match with. but Or like I meet this person at an event, but it's not going to be through technology or social media apps or anything like that. Because historically for me, it's been terrible. Like not one good thing has come from it. And my therapist has gotten to the point where she's like, you tried, you gave an honest try. It's not for you. We move on to the next thing. So yeah, no more for me. Well, you say uh, that that photographer, the aforementioned photographer who looked good on paper, I was imagining, I was imagining like an okay Cupid profile, but was it actual paper? Did did this mm-hmm. photographer submit a resume like for you to consider? <laughs> um, not a full resume, but a, a very lovely email and some actual printed photographs that he took via mail. Wow! So and sent it... me a camera. And sent you a camera. Mm-hmm. And lenses. All right. Good on paper, not in a relationship. Not in a relationship. But did you keep the camera? I didn't. I sent it back when we decided not to talk anymore. Oh. Okay. I was going to say, at least you, maybe a lens. You keep a lens? No? I sent everything back. <laughs> you did. You just complete disentanglement. Yeah. So you can't have anything to come back with, but that's it. Uh, well, I want to I wanna talk about Candor mm-hmm. because something that struck me about this book is how how open and honest it is about difficult subject matter. And when you think of like a lonely person, you, you often imagine somebody who's kind of closed off and who's mm-hmm. private and kind of folded in on themselves. But this isn't always the case. I guess this is the mm-hmm. point is that you can be lonely and very honest. <laughs> yeah. And uh, like, I think actually that what might be closer to the truth is that people who are experiencing loneliness, if you give them a chance to speak, well, oftentimes... Mm-hmm. Tell, tell it to you straight. They have lots to say. They just might not yeah. have anybody who has cared enough to ask, you know? Exactly. And so I think you, that's how I approach it. Yeah, and you turn to this book. I mean, I imagine that this mm-hmm. book is a repository for a lot of that feeling and a lot of those mm-hmm. uh, deeper thoughts about your life and this issue. And I don't know. I guess that's like 
more of a statement than a question, but I just find you, I find you to be an unusually candid writer. And I always appreciate that when somebody's willing to kind of say the stuff that usually doesn't get said. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've mentioned this in a couple of other things and interviews I've done is that I, the stuff that I put in my books is stuff that I'm ready to talk about and stuff that is not necessarily painful. And I do that for two reasons. One is because anything that I'm not ready to talk about exists in a file folder on my laptop and there's essays and poems and stories that will never see the light of day because they are for nothing other than destruction and rage and hurt and pain and nobody needs to read that but I need to stop wait what is what is the name of this file folder will you at least share that is it called the pain Um, pain folder or what is it it's called good morning heartache okay (laughs) so (laughs) even better (laughs) there's yeah there's fully flesh essays and poems and everything in there that I'm not ready to put into the world and so the stuff that I put in my book is stuff that I'm ready to talk about, stuff that I think is important. And then the second reason I usually try to write as openly as possible is because for a very, very, very long time, I felt voiceless. I felt invisible. And I was in a writing course um, in 2018 with, no, 2019 with Beth Wynn. It was a memoir writing course. And she made it a point during my introduction to stop me because I was kind of downplaying myself and saying that I was like this boring black girl from Ohio and I don't have an interesting background. Nobody's going to care. And she said, what would it mean to you as this, this quote unquote boring black girl from Ohio to have a voice that was similar to yours in the world telling stories that were important to you? And I had never thought about it in that way. So then I started approaching my work with the idea that like there are people who feel exactly like I feel who don't have the means to express it or feel like there's nothing out there for them that kind of expresses these quieter feelings in a way that make them seem important. So it's why I try to be as honest as possible without damaging myself, but just kind of giving voice to these feelings and giving my readers enough respect to know that I'm not trying to sugarcoat or hide or paint over like these very real emotions. Have you heard back from readers who have resonated in the way that you hoped? I have, thankfully. I get a lot of Instagram DMs, which that's my favorite social media app out of all of them. And so I've I've heard from quite a few people who are like, I feel this, but I wasn't sure how to express it, or I I wasn't sure if other people felt this way, because I think sometimes it's very difficult to explain how it is that you can be lonely when you're still very much connected to the world. Like people assume that loneliness is this isolated person with no community, no connection, no family. And so a lot of those responses that I've been getting privately have been, thank you for like saying this because I can't explain what it's like to be in a room and feel like you're disconnected from everything. But then I've also had people tell me critically that my book is too sad. And I'm like, and I even take that kind of as a, a win in a way, because I'm making you feel something. And you might not be ready to confront your own feelings of loneliness and disconnection right now, but it's opening something up where you know that there's an emotion there that you haven't dealt with before. But vastly, the message I've, messages I've been getting have been like, thank you for kind of like putting air to these things that I feel. That's got to be really gratifying. I feel like for most writers, this is certainly the case with me, a handful of those letters and I'm good. Mm-hmm. Like the book and the, all the hell of writing it, you know, the trials and tribulations of writing a book and, you know, all the uncertainty that goes into it. Just to hear from like a, a few complete strangers who read it 
and it was for them. Yes. I'm good. <laughs> like I'm that's, happy. Yeah, I'm happy. My job is done. <laughs> My job is done. And then you just let it have an existence, you know, whatever kind of existence it's going to have. But you just want it to connect with the people for whom it's for. And you bring up a couple of interesting points that I want us to talk about a little bit more. Mm-hmm. One, one of which is the case that you can be very lonely and yet also connected and professional and busy and interacting mm-hmm. with people. That is maybe the more common kind of loneliness. Yeah. Okay? So that's one thing, and we can talk about it. But I think connected to that is the fact that you can be mostly alone and not be lonely. <laughs> True. Like, it's complicated, right? Because that's how I am. Like, I spend a lot... I, th- I think for the average person, they would look at how much time I spend just sitting in here doing my work, and they would be like, I would go crazy. I don't go crazy. Yeah. I'm perfectly content. And I think that I know people who are what I would characterize as like manically social. That might be an unkind (laughs) characterization, but it's like, it's almost like they can't be alone with their own thoughts. Right. And so they are constantly seeking out stimulation and interaction and social distraction or whatever you want to characterize it Mm -hmm. as, as a way of avoiding a confrontation with themselves. Right. So do you know what I'm saying? Like it can work both ways. It can work both ways. You can be lonely in a crowd and not lonely alone. (laughs) Yeah. I think me being lonely in crowds, I kind of allude to it in the opening essay, this idea that I can feel when I disconnect, like I shut down. And being in social settings is really, really, really draining for me. Like I can handle it. But my friends and I joke, when I do this um, with putting my hand next to my head, it means my people meter is full and it's time for us to go because I'm starting to get irritated. I'm starting to get like disengaged. And for me, I can only take being in social settings so much because being the act of being on and being engaged and talking to people and, and just even physically people touching me, I can't handle for too much too much time. So me being alone in my in my my aloneness, not my loneliness sometimes, but my aloneness is a way for me to recharge. Like my some of my friends don't understand. Like I work from home now two days a week. And so I work in the office Monday through Wednesday and work from home Thursday, Friday. And there's it's not uncommon from Wednesday to like Sunday for me just to fall off the face of the earth and just not deal with people, sometimes not go out just to recharge myself from dealing with people Monday through Wednesday. And I I could never live if I had to always be one or connected or in full of stimulus. It's just no way. But I think the loneliness while you're with people is also some ways a, a symptom of being maybe empathetic in a way, like always feeling like you have to be aware of other people's emotions and feelings. And that can be so overwhelming that you kind of shut down. At least that's how it works for me sometimes. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult prospect to be in, in a social setting for too long. I think there's also something to be said for the superficiality of most social exchanges. Yeah. And the transactional nature of too many social exchanges in our mm-hmm. world, especially our work world. Yeah. And if you're somebody who cares about substance... And I think, you know, what you're talking about is introversion, which again, mm-hmm. most I think most writers have some degree of. Not all. There are some extroverted yeah. writers, but that certainly resonates with me, feeling exhausted after being at a party. Like, that's me to a T. Though I can do it. Yeah, I can. 
But what I don't like is I don't like transactional relationships and I cannot stand small talk. Oh, yeah. Like that is what exhausts me because it feels so empty. Right. It's like, what are we doing? We're just talking. Like we're not like this kind of conversation that you and I are having now. This is what I'm after, like at every party that I'm at. <laughs> I just want to like right. find somebody who can actually have a conversation, who can like, you know, remove themselves from the noise so we can just actually start talking. It doesn't happen that often. But what I don't love and what totally exhausts me is when I go into a crowded room and everyone's just jabbering all around me mm-hmm. and none of it means anything. Everyone's just like, right. everyone's like on autopilot or something. I can't navigate those environments very well. Yeah. Because I just feel like people are just bullshitting. Maybe that's just the normal way. Maybe I need to be a better bullshitter. But oh, no, I think it's too. And like, it's just this weird space that writers in the modern era, and that we have to be concerned about platform and connection, right? As a way to kind of get into the industry, and that's not my forte. I'm not the best networker. I, I'm, I'm not good at it, and so when I talk about like creative community and creative connection, the word that comes up most often for me is organic because I I care about actually having conversations with the people that I follow or follow me or being able to be accessed like emotionally with some people. Like the idea of having just so many people in a room or so many people on a platform and to have to have an engagement with them, it's just, it's not feasible. It doesn't make sense to me. I, I like I go to conferences and I'll stop. Like I go to AWP probably every year, but like about day two, they're like, "Where did Athena go? She's in the hotel room by herself <laughs> because she's not coming out." She's like, the lights yeah. are off. She is just she's like gone. Gone. I get that. I went to AWP yeah. once. I had to go like lie down. I didn't. I couldn't. Mm-hmm. It's just a lot. But I disappear. It, I feel like uh, I feel like that. I mean, that all sounds natural to me. I don't know. Like. Wanting to have meaningful exchanges mm-hmm. and not wanting to have superficial exchanges, <laughs> that seems sane to me. And yet, I think there is something to be said for being able to kind of like have a casual exchange with a person. Like not everything has to be loaded with meaning. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, I don't, and I don't mean to characterize myself as the guy who always wants to have like a heart-to-heart with everybody. I just do much better, I think, in one-on-ones. And I don't like... Yeah. I don't like moving around a room and like having five second conversations with like 30 people. Right. No, I can't do that. Like I'm usually the person that's off in the corner and the people recognize that I'm in the corner by myself and they come find me. I mentioned earlier about how more extroverted people always find me. Like one of my best friends, I used to go to an open mic all the time and I would sit at the same table in the same seat. I wouldn't talk to anybody. I would just be there for the open mic and three weeks in a row, she came and sat at my table and she's like, I'm going to sit here every single week until you talk to me. And I will not leave this table until you talk to me. And I was like, I don't want to talk to you. But she did not care. And she forced me to be her friend. And now like 20 years later, we're still friends. But that's how it usually goes. Like they notice that I'm not engaging in the way that everybody else is engaging in the room. And then they come find me. And it kind of works out because there's usually one person who's brave enough to come over and then I latch one to them, and then we're good for the rest of the, the time that I'm there. Yeah. I mean, it's so weird. I, I don't know. Maybe I don't know myself that well. I kind of feel like I'm a person who would find you. Because I, be I would be at a party or in a crowded room, and the person who is sitting off to the side, I'd probably gravitate there just because I'd be like, oh, I can hear myself think. Yeah. Or, or I'm like, oh, there's a kindred, kindred spirit, you know. 
feel like I like, might be able to hide. Let's go hide. <laughs> let's let's make a yes. pact. <laughs> but you know, you write about in the book uh, the Truman Show and uh-huh. paras- parasocial relationships. Yes, uh, I think there's something connected between those two. You know, the Truman Show for people who haven't seen it is a Jim Carrey movie about a guy who unwittingly has lived his entire life on screen. It's kind of like a dystopian fantasy movie about Truman and how he discovers the fact that he's been living essentially an artificial life. And then when it comes to loneliness and this new term parasocial relationships where you develop relationships with people online, even if they don't know it, right? There are famous people, for example, there are people who have told me they have a parasocial relationship with me because they listen mm-hmm. to my show regularly and I'm kind of this recurring voice in their head and they feel like they know me and yet mm-hmm. we've never met, spoken, even had like a yeah. written exchange, you know, until they write to me and tell me. But um, I want to talk to you about the online experience, in particular online in social media environments where everybody has sort of become like their own marketing department. Everyone's making advertisements for themselves. Mm -hmm. Everyone's talking to, I say this repeatedly, but everyone's talking to their phones and just being like, hey, (laughs) y'all. Like, I'm just like, (laughs) I have such a physical aversion. And I don't mean to diminish people who do that because it's the world we live in. I understand everybody's got to make a living. And some people, I think it's how they were, you know, the younger generations, that's just what everybody does. Yeah. But I would say politely i'm not sure if that's healthy and the only, and the reason i say yeah. that the, the reason i say that is because whenever i have a physical response to something that is this dramatic mm-hmm. like dramatically negative it's not it's usually not for no reason like right. i really do recoil from this like i'm like what this can't be good for people every day just like talking to their phones to this audience and constantly i mean I don't know. And yet I do some version of it. You know what I'm saying? I'm putting mm-hmm. up video clips of this show. and But I just, yeah. I think I'd love to hear you talk about digital life in that way and parasocial relationships and how it factors into your understanding of loneliness. So I think I, I feel similar in terms of like how we exist on social media now. I didn't really have any kind of interaction with the internet until I was 18 when I went to college. So everything prior to 18 was very analog. And then I got to college and discovered a 24-hour computer lab. And so I went from nothing to being on Yahoo chat rooms and AOL Instant Messenger constantly. And so my entire adulthood has existed online and then now through message boards and now social media apps. So it's all that I've known as an adult. But I think where we are now is there's this weird space between the social media and content creation. And I think people think that they're the same thing and they're not like content creation is like you going to a grocery store and setting up a tripod and filming like a get ready with me or the people who film themselves waking up in the morning, but the camera's already set up. Like (laughs) all of that is like content creation, which is like it's own beast that I do not understand and I cannot get with. But I do find myself doing a lot of Instagram stories where I'm just in my element talking about random stuff, because I think that there's a social aspect of that. And then those kind of videos end up getting conversations about organic things versus be trying to sell you a product. And I think that we have now reached this tipping point 
where we don't recognize the difference between content creation and what social media initially was. That everybody now is trying to be a brand or market themselves or be an affiliate or sell something or become an influencer. Influencer wasn't like a job when I was younger. And I sound kind of, I'm dating myself, but it's a job now, which is... I don't know. Like, I don't like the idea of your whole life having to be, to revolve around selling something. Like, where are the private joys and the private experiences of your life that are not for consumption? And then with parasocial relationships, it's kind of similar. I think I'm a person, I write in the book about writing fan fiction and having run a fan page um, for a, a while. And For what? Fan fiction. Um, I write Black Panther fan fiction, the oh, Marvel right. movie, yeah. and then I ran a fan fiction page for um, an actor affiliated with that series for a while. And so when I started those, like when I started the fan page, it was like the one thing that I did in my life. I was completely anonymous when I ran it, but I ran it because it was the one thing in my life that had zero expectation. Like I had no thought about making money. I wasn't trying to meet this actor. I wasn't trying to like... Be, be in a Marvel movie, it was just entertainment. And eventually it became like like a competition with myself. Like, how can I find exclusive information? And then when I got too deep into it, I was like, okay, it's time to stop. But with fan fiction, I've been writing fan fiction since I was like a little kid. And for me, it was my way of creating the world in a way that I wanted it to be. It was a way of being not necessarily a different Athena, but a uh, like maybe like a better or an altered version of myself so that the parts of myself that I didn't feel were able to be expressed in the real world, I could write myself into a story being a lot more confident or successful or as I got older, desired in ways that I couldn't as myself in the real world. And then it, that fan fiction morphed into me. Like before I wrote my first collection that came out in 2020, I stopped writing completely. Like I wasn't writing essays. I wasn't writing poetry. The only thing I was writing was fan fiction. And what fan fiction ended up being for me was an outlet for me to be able to um, learn how to engage with an audience and how to build tension, how to write stuff without a lot of dialogue and still make people feel something and immerse them. And so those parasocial relationships that I had with the actors in that movie eventually became useful. And it became useful because I recognized that none of it was reality. I think sometimes parasocial relationships get a bad rap because there are there are representatives of parasocial relationships who take it way too far. And they they believe that they're actively engaged with these people and these pieces of media and they don't know that there's a line that they're crossing. But if you're recognizing that this is never going to be real life, you can find very useful things in it and it's up to you to like write the path that you're on. Okay. Well, that's nice. That's a nice point. The fact that like writing fan fiction, having these parasocial relationships can be a benefit. I mean, just as a writing issue, mm-hmm. it was just great training ground for you. I think between like 2018 and like 2020, roughly, I wrote like a half a million words of like fan fiction. I was just writing all the time. I was taking requests and like that would get me to be sharper with writing because I would make people, they would send me write a story about XYZ and I would like take a day and write this 
five, 6,000 word story. I've written fan fictions that I've had like 20 plus chapters just for fun. And it was really honing my writing skills. And I think the slippery slope of social media and parasocial relationships is that it's so easy to get in the, caught in the illusion of what it could be and what it could do to your life that you forget that you have to take some of those lessons and the opportunities and the, the connections that exist in that fantasy world and apply them to real life. Mm-hmm. That people slip over into that being their real life versus it being an outlet. And that's where the trouble comes in. Yeah. And you're getting, I would imagine, feedback on what you're writing and that feedback yeah. becomes addictive. You know, those little hits of dopamine and, you know, mm-hmm. but but it's like two-sided because there's that, which I think can become problematic if you get too hooked on it. And again, it, mm-hmm. like you say, it kind of removes you from reality, but it also trains you to be a better writer because you are writing for an audience. And mm-hmm. I think when you are writing in a vacuum, which is how I think most of us work if we're on like Microsoft Word or whatever, grappling with a book yeah. for a number of years, there is no immediate audience. And, no. and even if you publish the book, you might hear from readers here and there or hear from readers on tour, but so much of it is a big question mark as the book is out there in the world. You might, you know, I guess unless you go over to Goodreads and you know, start <laughs> abusing yourself by reading those things. But yeah, I learned it, my lesson with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, just the point is that it's, uh, it's, a, it's complicated and it's, it's maybe something for writers who are learning or maybe struggling to be aware of as an option. Like, go write for an audience. Learn how to please a readership. That's a valuable set of lessons. And there are some really, 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 really good fan fiction writers. And I feel so bad, uh, badly so sometimes that they don't get the recognition that they deserve because they're writing fan fiction and people think fan fiction is not serious. But some of the best writing that I've read in the last five years has been fan fiction because you are writing to the needs and the wants and the, and the, and the, and I don't say expectations, but like into like the joy of your audience. And like, so you're finding new ways and new entry points. And I think that it's an underrated genre. So loneliness today, like I guess you're on book tour, so you're maybe less lonely than you would otherwise be, but on like a scale of one to 10 with 10 being maximally lonely, how would you evaluate your current state of loneliness? I think I'm probably around a, a five. I think about a five. That seems like a good place to be. It's pretty good. It's a, it's it's not desperation, but it's not like resolution because I don't think I I will never be at a one. I don't think there's any resolution to loneliness. So five is okay. Five is manageable. Now, when I go home after book tour is over, it might go a little higher because I separate my creative life and my day-to-day life. And so that's a lot of isolation because I can't be fully me when I'm not doing book-related stuff. So it'll probably go up to like a seven, maybe an eight. But right now I'm a five because I'm in my element. Okay. And do you have any other books in the works currently? I do. I started back in October of 2022, working on a book about pleasure and beauty and desirability. And so I'm starting to like bang out drafts of essays and researching stuff. And I'm really excited because it's like a lot lighter and a lot more 
fun than the current book. The first current book was interesting and curiosity drove me into that. But this book, I get to explore some lighter topics. And so it's a lot easier to write at the offset because I'm not living in a global pandemic by myself as I'm starting to write it. All right. Well, congratulations on the loneliness files. And I just appreciate you taking the time to talk with me as you're out on tour. And I wish you luck with this next collection. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, folks, there we have it. That was Athena Dixon. Great conversation with her. Her new book is called The Loneliness Files. It is a memoir in essays available from Tin House. You can find Athena on the internet at athenadixon.com. Follow her on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. One more time, the book is called The Loneliness Files. A very insightful and illuminating look at something that I think plagues a great many of us. So go get your copy right away. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. You can also subscribe on YouTube. If you want to sign up for my weekly email newsletter, you can do that at Substack. Join the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you have a couple of minutes and you want to do me a quick favor, please give this show a rating wherever you listen. Write a little review. It helps the show find new listeners. If you would like some other people apparel, a t-shirt, a sweatshirt, that sort of stuff, you can get it over at the Other People website, otherppl.com. And finally, a quick plug for my latest book, a novel entitled Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so I will read it to you. It's a book. It's mine. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. If you want to read it, you can do that. All right. So coming up on Wednesday, I will be in conversation with author Dan Sinekin. He has a new book out called Big Fiction, How Conglomeration Changed the Publishing Industry and American Literature. That is available from Columbia University Press. I had a very interesting conversation with Dan Sinekin. So get ready. Stay tuned.